Hebrews 1. We're going to read the first 12 verses. We're going to be thinking this morning about the next part of the Apostles' Creed, uh, what it means to say that Jesus is God's only Son, our Lord. So, let's read these verses together. Hebrews 1 from verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. It may seem like an unlikely thing to remember uh, for almost 30 years, but I wonder if any of you who are old enough happened to be watching the Terry Wogan show on the 29th of April, 1991. Because if you were, I suspect you might be able to remember it. Wogan was, <clears throat> was interviewing a certain David Icke. Uh, for the younger ones, uh, you have to understand that David Icke had been a professional footballer. He was a goalkeeper with Coventry City and then Hereford United, uh, and then he had to give it up because of injury, and he became a very high-profile sports presenter. So think Gary Lineker, Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, these kind, of, these kind of names. He was one of those figures on TV. But by 1991, he had given it all up and started to make some fairly outlandish claims. And during this interview, Wogan asked various questions, and one of the questions was this. The press claim that you claim to be the Son of God. Is that true? To which David Icke infamously replied, yes. In response to the fairly predictable laughter of the audience, 
uh, he commented that they would have responded in the same way to Jesus himself. Now, it should be said that uh, David Icke has since retracted that claim. He's kind of stepped back from that claim. He has uh, admitted that he said that to get attention, um, which I guess uh, was successful. Um, but he has also gone on to claim, and this is what he was trying to get attention for, trying to get attention for his other views. And he has gone on to claim that the world is being controlled and gradually taken over by an interdimensional hybrid race of shape-shifting human reptilian beings. As recently as 2012, believe it or not, 6,000 people flocked to Wembley to hear him give a 10-hour lecture on this stuff. So if you think the sermons are long... Well, if David Icke is anything to go by, claiming to be the Son of God is not something that's likely to make people take you seriously. Nevertheless, he was right about one thing. That's exactly the claim that Jesus Christ made 2,000 years ago, and ever since, some have laughed, and some have believed. It's the claim that the Christian church has affirmed ever since, that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. And so we come this morning to this part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, the Father's only Son, our Lord. Why is that a claim that is laughable when David Icke makes it, but that we need to take with the utmost seriousness in relation to Christ? So we begin with the first part of that claim. Jesus is the only Son of God. For some people, I suspect for many people, and I actually suspect for a good number of Christians, that title sometimes causes a little bit of confusion. What exactly do we mean? Christians sometimes refer to Jesus as God and sometimes as the Son of God. So, which is He? When we say that He is God, are we just getting a little bit carried away? Was he really just someone who was particularly close to God, even someone who was particularly like God? And if he's the son of God, doesn't that mean that he's somehow less than God himself? Sons come along after their fathers, don't they? And, and sons are smaller than their fathers, aren't they? At least, well, maybe for the first, what, 14 years or so, something like that. And, and, and Jesus, didn't He come along after God the Father? God is there from the beginning, but Jesus only appears in the New Testament, doesn't He? And then if Jesus was sent by God, which is the language the Bible uses, doesn't that mean that He's different from God, even that He's somehow less than God? Well, to start with, if we're going to understand this, we need to know something of what it meant in Bible times to describe someone as the son of someone or something. What does sonship mean in biblical terms? Uh, to be the son of someone or something meant two things. Firstly, a son shared in the nature and character of his father. A son shared in the nature and character of his father. Fathers have sons who are like them in multiple ways. Uh, they're like them in the sense that they bear the same nature. We, we don't just call it production, we call it reproduction. Horses don't produce chickens. They reproduce horses. It would be a strange world if you went to a maternity ward, you never knew what was going to arrive. We, we reproduce. People reproduce people. Often the small people look like the, big, the bigger people physically. He's got his dad's eyes, we say. But in the ancient world, it was clearly understood 
that the nature and character of the Father was transferred to the Son. If you wanted to know who someone was in the ancient world, you you didn't say, what do you do for a living? You didn't say, are you married? Do you have children? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? You said, who's your father? That's what told you who someone was. Because in biblical times, a son shared in the nature and character of his father. And here's the second thing. A son performed the functions of his father. Virtually always, and this remained true until relatively recently, virtually always a son would take up the work that the father had done. It's thought that Jesus himself, before his public ministry, probably followed in Joseph's footsteps and being a a skilled craftsman or carpenter in Nazareth. So, you have these two things. The son shares in the nature or character of the father and does the work of the father, and, and that can be kind of used in different ways, sometimes in serious ways, sometimes in playful ways. So, uh, for example, in 1 Samuel, uh, you had early in 1 Samuel, you've got Eli the priest, and you've got his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are also priests, but they are wicked men. And the way that 1 Samuel describes that is it says they were sons of wickedness. That's the expression that's used. And, and that's a common Old Testament expression. To be a son of something means to show those characteristics. So, Hophni and Phinehas were sons of wickedness. They bore the character of wickedness. They had inherited it from their father, wickedness. Or um, if you think in the, in the Gospels, Jesus nicknamed James and John sons of thunder. They're kind of just a little glimpse of, of kind of humor out there. You're seeing just a little glimpse into the, the life of the disciples together. And presumably they're, they're hot-headed. They have the character of thunder. They do the work of thunder, loud, sudden outbursts, presumably. And to this day, if you say to somebody, ah, he's his, he's his father's son, you're, you're saying something about the character of the child, aren't you? Similarity of character or behavior. In the Old Testament, there are a few occasions where people are referred to as sons of God. Israel is referred to collectively as a son of God. Her kings are sometimes referred to as sons of God. And again, the the point there is the same. The point is that Israel, her people, her kings, all of them are are intended to reflect the nature and character of God and to do the work of God in the world. It's a very deliberate um, parallel. And then Jesus comes along, and, and against that background, what do we find? Right from the beginning, the angel Gabriel tells Mary in Luke 1 that her son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's the expression he uses. Not a son, the Son of the Most High. The Son of God. And in the next chapter, we find uh, Jesus, we were commenting on this recently, Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple in Jerusalem. His parents come looking for him. He says, didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? Again, we noted then that that's extraordinary in itself because Although the Jews occasionally refer to God as our Father, no, nowhere in the whole of the Jewish literature before Jesus does anyone ever refer to God as my Father. Jesus is making a claim. He's claiming an intimacy of relationship uh, with God. He refers to Jesus as his Father all the time. 
And so already you have this kind of developing sense that Jesus' claim to be Son of God is something different from, something greater than any claim that he's especially close to God, he's a particularly good person, anything of that nature. And as his ministry begins, you see more and more clearly that this Son of God is utterly unique. He goes to be baptized at the Jordan. And what happens as he's baptized? A voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Or the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not, have, should not perish but have eternal life. His only Son, literally his, his one-of-a-kind Son. There's something new and different happening in Jesus. There's no one else like him. He is the Son of God. But, but I, want to, I want to just be as clear as possible on this, and so I want to zero in cl- closer on this particular terminology. How, how, how does this Son of God relate to God? Is he the Son of God or is he God? Well, let's consider the evidence. There are three pieces of evidence that I want us to look at. Here's the first of them. The Son of God is said to have existed eternally with God the Father. You get that over and over again um, in, in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus in John 17 says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> Incredible thing to say. The glory I had with you before the world existed. He's saying he was there. Or think of that statement of John at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus is the eternal Word of God and is with God in the beginning. Everything is made through Him. And then, and then He became flesh. And says, John, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, the one-of-a-kind Son from the Father. And so, what we, what we come to understand is that Jesus does not come into existence 2,000 years ago. He does not. It's 2,000 years ago, he, he became a human being, this the Son of God became a human being and came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. But the Son of God always existed. There's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is that this Son of God does the work of God and does it to completion. If a son does the work of the Father, then Jesus' full and final completion of God's work of redemption marks him out as the Son of God in a unique way. He says over and over again, I've come to do the will of my Father. I don't do anything on my own account. I I listen to what my Father tells me to do, and and I do it. In John 17, I glorified you on earth, he says to the Father, having accomplished, having finished completely the work that you gave me to do. And then as he hangs on the cross, of course, that that moment, that shout of triumph and of completion, it it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. I've completed the work of God. And then the final piece of evidence, the Son of God not only does the work of God fully, but He fully shares the nature and character and very essence of God Himself. If a son reflects the nature and character of the Father, what of Jesus? Well, His claim is that all 
that the Father is, he is. John 10.30, I and the Father are what? Similar, quite alike. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. Hebrews 1 that we read earlier, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the identical duplicate of God's very essence and reality. Or or to go back to, to John 1, he makes it explicit in the end. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus, the Son. He reflects the character of God. He does the work of God in such a way as to show that He is not only similar to God, He's identical to God. His character is the character of God. His work is the work of God. And for Jesus to describe Himself as the Son of God, to refer to God as my Father, is nothing less than a claim to divinity. He's claiming to be God. We should, we should never get confused about this. Oh, you, there's God, and then there's, there's the Son of God. No. There's God the Father, and then there's God the Son, and then there's God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, equal in power and being and glory, the same in character. The Son is everything that the Father is, except that He is not Father. The Son is everything that the Spirit is, except that He is not Spirit. The Word is God. It's a very revealing scene in John 5, if we were in any doubt about this. And the reason it's revealing is that it it shows not only what, what Jesus' contemporaries thought about what He said, but it shows what His enemies thought about what he said. Jesus refers, in John 5, Jesus refers to God as my Father, and then John immediately adds this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, they knew. They saw it. If you say that God is your Father, you are claiming to be God. You're claiming the nature and character of God are mine. Look at me, you see Him. And so, so to say that Jesus is God's only Son is the very opposite of a claim that He is different from God or less than God. It's to say that He is God. Now, all of that um, is, to put it mildly, not easy to understand. If you, if you find it hard to get your head around what it means for the Son of God to be a separate person from God the Father, and yet simultaneously the same being, not, not two gods, one God, um, uh, you know, don't worry about that. In fact, if you find it easy to conceptualize what that means, I would be really grateful if you would come and speak to me after the service. Um, but, but for most of us, you, you don't need to think about this for longer than, you know, a, a minute or so before you, you want to open the Nurofen. You know, your, your head starts to hurt a little bit as you try to think about what this means, the, the, these deepest mysteries of the Christian faith, or what it means for, for, for Jesus to be both God the Son, fully and truly, and to be a human being, fully and truly. None of that is is easy to grasp. 
Um, but we are talking about the deepest mysteries that exist. We're talking about the very nature of the eternal God who is utterly beyond our comprehension. So if your brain hurts, you're not alone. But what you need to know in the end is this. In dealing with Jesus, you are dealing with God. In dealing with Jesus, you are dealing with God. In trusting Jesus, you are trusting God. In following Jesus, you are following God. He is, not a, he is not separate from God. He is not someone who will pass a message along to God. He is God. And part of the wonder and, and grace and glory of the gospel lies precisely in the fact that when a Savior was needed to die for the sins of God's people, God did not send someone else. He didn't delegate the task. He came, God came, all of God in Christ came to be our Savior. To respond to Him in faith is to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Uh, moving on, one of the implications of that fact, the fact that Jesus is God, is that He is entitled to be treated as God. And that's really what we're saying in the second phrase in the creed that we're looking at this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, there's, again, there's a background to that because that word Lord, that title, can be used in different ways. Um, in years gone by, in a past life, I used to sometimes stand in a sheriff court and um, address the person on the bench at the front as my Lord. Um, sometimes in the New Testament, that, that title is just a respectful form of address, roughly equivalent to sir. And yet, in context, references to Jesus as Lord have a much, much deeper significance. The personal name of God in the Old Testament, um, we're not even sure, to be honest, because of the way that Hebrew language works and because of the way that this name was treated. We're not even sure how you, how you should say it. Yahweh is what's often, um, uh, what it's often thought to be. It's, where it's the same, same name that Jehovah comes from, um, but Yahweh um, or I am translated in, in your Bible, you'll be aware, is whenever you see Lord in small capitals, that's uh, in the Old Testament, that's, the, uh, that's that, that name of God. Uh, the Greek word, if you were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is kurios. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God is referred to as kurios over 6,000 times. Uh, and then, Sorry, 6,000 times God is referred to as, as kurios, as Lord. That's, that's the background. Again, that's all, that all hangs in the background. And then you open your New Testament, and angels appear to shepherds outside Bethlehem, and they announce that a Savior has been born. And he is, he is Christ. He is the Christ. We saw that last time. The great prophet and priest and king, prophet of all prophets, priest of all priests, king of all kings. He is the Christ. He is the Lord, the kurios. The Savior has come. Or think of what Jesus himself says. This astonishing moment in John 8 where he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. The name of God. The name of the Lord. Jesus is identifying himself with the Lord, with God. Uh, others use it of him in a unique way when Thomas finally exclaims, my Lord and my God. 
You know, he's, he's, that's not a polite deferential, deferential thing. He's not saying, oh, sir, hello. He's saying, my Lord and my God. He's, he's seen it, this astonishing truth that the one standing before him is the Lord. He is the King. He is God. And then from the earliest times, the church has understood that the Lord is Lord like no one else. And time and time again, if you were to go through your New Testament and look at the way, there are, there are great huge volumes on this, look at the way that the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Whenever the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, which was their Bible, that's what they were preaching from and teaching from. Whenever they quote the Old Testament and, and they use it, they use it in very distinctive ways. Let me give you one example. In Joel chapter 2, uh, the people are told, the people of Israel were told that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. In Romans 10, Paul urges his readers to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead. Why? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. He takes this this text, which clearly refers to God of gods. And he says, this is Jesus we're talking about. Believe in the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. It couldn't be clearer. John Stott says, the early Christians gave Jesus a God title, transferred to Him God texts, and offered Him God worship. And so it came about that the simplest and shortest of statements, Jesus is Lord, became the first Christian creed of them all. It seems to have been used um, very early in the Christian church after the death of Jesus. The earliest Christians recognized His divinity and recognized that to confess Him as Lord was just to acknowledge reality. He is Lord over all things. Remember Paul's words in Colossians 1, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is the center of the universe. He is the Lord of all, and He is Lord everywhere, from the furthest reaches of the galaxies to Larbert Main Street to your living room. Jesus is Lord. And then within that, He is in a special way the Lord of the church. That's why we worship Him together, because He's our Lord and our God. That's why we pray to Him because He's Lord over our lives. That's why we turn together to His Word, because He's Lord. And when He speaks, His Word goes. It's just our rightful place to bow before Him, submit to His ways. And then more than that, He is Lord not just of the universe and not just of the church. He is Lord of each one of us. He's Lord of every part of each one of us, because His Lordship is total. We could, we could spend the next I don't know how long, going through every single aspect of our lives and saying, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord here? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of my nine to five? Lord of my bank account and my pension fund. Lord of my leisure time. Lord of my Sundays. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord Famously, Abraham Kuyper uh, said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, not one square inch, 
over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This too is mine, no matter what part of your life you think of. That there is, there is not one square inch of your life that you can say, that part there is mine. This is, this is mine to rule, mine to decide without reference to Christ. Jesus, the voice of Jesus comes. He says, no, mine. This too is mine. And then before we move on, let me just mention that the Lordship of Christ speaks not only of His power and rule, it speaks also of His salvation, of His gospel. There's huge significance in declaring Jesus to be the living and reigning Lord of all. He is the Lord of life who died. To speak of Him as Lord now, today, we're speaking of the Jesus who hung on the cross. So to speak of Him as Lord now, today, is to celebrate His triumph over the forces of evil, the powers of death and hell. He is the conquering King of glory. That's what it means that He's Lord. You see that reflected in Philippians 2. Um, you see it when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He speaks very bluntly, God sent Jesus, you rejected Him, you killed Him, but God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And then He, and then he kind of builds up towards this great conclusion in his sermon, and this is, this, is, this is where it comes. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection of Jesus is God's great declaration, this is Lord. He is Lord. He does reign. He is my beloved Son, and He has done my great work. And so, when we acknowledge Christ as Lord, what it means is that we do it gladly. We do it gladly because we know that His reign is for our good. He is a good King. He is a good Lord. And we are most free when we submit most completely and fully to Him. It can be frightening, that little bit, that little square inch of your life that you want to keep to yourself. It, it feels like that's freedom. I'm going to do my own thing here. It feels like liberty. Nobody else is going to tell me it's a lie. You aren't made to rule over one square inch of your life, not a bit of it. And it's tyranny to do that. It is liberty to hand it over to Christ and to say, here too you reign. Here too I will bow before you and give you what you demand, what you want for me. I said earlier that to confess Jesus as Lord and as our Lord is simply to acknowledge reality. It's just to bow before the one who really is our master and our king. At the same time, it's a revolutionary act, and it's not something that, that can be done lightly. That, that's not, you can't say, you know, Jesus is Lord lightly. It's revolutionary in the most direct sense. In confessing Jesus as the only Son of God, as our Lord, we are mounting a revolution against anyone and anything else that might claim to be Lord over us. We're saying that we will bow before no one else. We will bow before nothing else because Jesus is Lord. 
And in saying that, we're saying that the reason Jesus is our Lord is because Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. And, and, and in this respect, unpopular as it may be in our world today, the Bible unashamedly makes exclusive claims about Christ. To declare that Jesus Christ is Lord means there is no other. No one else is. More than that, to declare that He is the Son of God means that to worship God simply means to worship God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, as we'll be thinking later in the series too. This is central and essential to the Christian faith. It has multiple implications. It, it, it implies that if you, if you read about Christ and think about Christ and admire Christ and admire His words, but do not bow before Him in worship and in obedience, then you are not a Christian but a rebel. This is central. It's essential. What, what you have may be any number of things, but it's not Christianity. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not what His followers understood Him to mean. It's not what His enemies understood Him to mean. It's not what the early church believed and formulated in its creeds. It's not what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. The belief that Jesus is God is precisely what separates Christian faith from every other religious belief. Why people find it surprising and offensive that Christians have a distinctive set of beliefs not shared by the culture around them, I have no idea. Because it is in the nature of religious profession that you do. That's what a religion is. We believe a distinctive set of beliefs that are not shared by the world around us. Every religion does. But of course, people intensely dislike claims to absolute truth, and especially claims to exclusive truth. And it's important in these days with the intense cultural pressure upon us to, to step back from such claims, it's important to recognize that when people object to that, they're not objecting to us, they're objecting to Jesus. The problem is not with us, it's with Jesus, because it's His claim, it's not ours. I, I, I didn't come along, the church didn't come along and say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by Him. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus Himself said it. Jesus says, all religions don't lead to God. Jesus says, all ideas are not equally valid and true. Jesus says this. There's huge cultural pressure on the church to abandon these kind of claims, but if we do if under the pressure of those voices we crumble and stop confessing and worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord, then we've lost the Christian faith and we've lost the gospel. These statements from the creed really are revolutionary. They turn everything upside down. They challenge us profoundly, every man, woman, and child. And if they're controversial today, they always were. It's really interesting. God's only Son, our Lord. What got Jesus killed? What got Jesus killed? The Jews hauled him up before Pilate, and they said, you need to execute this man because he claims to be the Son of God. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. 
That was the charge that the Jews brought in John 19. That's why they wanted Jesus dead. It's not the reason why Pilate killed him. What's the reason why Pilate killed him? If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They called for his death because he claimed to be God's only son. They killed him because he claimed to be Lord. Let me close with this. Jesus makes those claims, and he, those claims take him to rejection, and they take him to suffering, and they take him to death. To this day, to this day, those who follow him must be willing to maintain those claims, and therefore to follow him, to follow him into rejection, and into suffering, and into death, to go outside the camp be rejected, to be despised, to be laughed at, mocked. You people are ridiculous. This person probably didn't even exist. He's coming again. What are you talking about? That's where we belong. That's where we belong. And so we follow him into that ridicule and that rejection. But we do so trusting that holding on to these great truths, we will follow him too through death and into resurrection and new life and victory and glory. This is his path. One of the reasons the early Christians suffered so much at the hands of the Romans was that it was the duty of every person in the Roman Empire to, to declare that Caesar is Lord. That demand, um, I was going to say that demand is not made of us today, it is, but it just comes in different forms. Money is Lord, career is Lord, family is Lord, diversity is Lord. Social media approval is Lord. Health is Lord. Bow. Give your allegiance. And we say no. Peter Lewis, a retired minister, uh, tells of a time when he spoke at the opening of a new church in Doncaster. Um, it was a, a sort of opening service, and because of the number of visitors and well-wishers, the, the place that the church, I don't know where the church was, would normally have met, but the place that they would normally have met, they couldn't use for the opening service because there were so many visitors coming, and so they had to find a bigger venue. And the venue they found was um, Doncaster Museum. That was where their opening service was held. And uh, Doncaster was a center of the Roman occupation of Britain. And the museum there holds a, a large collection of, of Roman artifacts. And, and Peter Lewis recalls how he stepped up to the lectern. And as he was about to speak, he looked around the room. And suddenly it struck him. Just suddenly it struck him. There they were in a museum 
surrounded by the rusted relics of a civilization that claimed that Caesar was Lord. Faded glory in glass cases. Lifeless testimony to a lordship long since crumbled and a reign long since ended. He looked around at all of this, around the edges of this space that they occupied. And then he looked in front of him. And what did he see? He saw the living people of the living Lord. And there in the midst of them, enthroned on their praises, the risen Christ, the one who always was and who is today and who always will be, Lord. Lord of you, Lord of me, Lord of all. Let's pray. God, our Father, every rain rises and falls. Every power comes and goes. All other rule, all other lordship, all other authority is merely partial and merely temporary and and actually in the end derived from you anyway. It is all a subset of, of your power, of the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to we want to lift him high in our hearts. We want to exalt him in our lives. We want to live out in every square inch of our existence what it is to say here to you, Jesus, our God's only Son, here to you are Lord. You are Lord of me. You are Lord of my life. Father, forgive us for those things that we have withheld from you, those areas of sin that we have coddled and treasured, not been willing to give up. We pray that this very day we might, we might open the door to you. Lord, we acknowledge it. You are Lord, but we acknowledge it now. And, and in this too, in this thing that I have withheld from you here too, I bow before you and acknowledge you to be king. May we be your servants. May we put ourselves at your disposal. May we be loyal and faithful subjects. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.